because this heart failure uh, is the final bandwidth of many of the cardiovascular diseases. When you start studying, for example, the valvular disease, or what happens in pericarditis and myocarditis, all of these things are going to realize. But there's a pattern here. Since we have to change a little bit, okay, but the pathway is the same. So today we are going to be talking about hypertension, shock, shock. So we work there, tiny work, but there are several types of shock. So this is a broad topic. Okay, inside shock, we have four different things there. Endocarditis, aortic dissection, yeah, abdominal aortic aneurysm, valvular disease.
consider uh, we have to do. And another thing is what we have or must do, depending on some people that will be right. So this is the clinical classification of hypertension that we consider normal okay, blood pressure that is below 120 and below 80, 119 and 79. Okay, 120 and 80 will be considered elevated according to current guidelines. Then we have stage one hypertension, stage two. Hypertension starts above a systolic of 130 and a diastolic of 80. Then we have stage 2. Then we have isolated systolic, isolated diastolic, and a mixed. Okay, for pattern isolated, remember we don't use this in cow classification, so it's not necessarily a human mobility table. Okay, pattern isolated, we don't ask which, is, which of the following is the stage of the patient. That is more clinical medicine. We just start getting familiar with this. Now, there is a hypertension okay, that we classify as tilted hypertension. And this is uh, good to know because you are going to ask the patients do you have any personal history? Do you have any disease? No, no, no. Do you have hypertension? That is no, no, no. Are you taking any medication? Yes, furosemide, capsuprio. Simvastatin, metformin. No, no, but with the kids, I'm okay. I, I don't have any. Sometimes they tell you I don't have any because they are, so they have controlled hypertension and treatment. So, now, understanding the classification and what we do with patients requires some, some kind of studies that the patient has to measure the blood pressure at home. As well as in the clinical setting, okay, the definition is a daytime blood pressure equal or greater than 110 over 80. And this is not one measurement, okay, this has to be the average of ambulatory measurements. Okay, or home readings, average, okay, above 135 over 80. And we sometimes have to compare these uh, average readings in the clinical setting with the ones at home to decide if they have some subtypes of hypertension that we call white coat and mask hypertension. Okay, the white coat is the one that simply occurs by office readings, but it's normal when they are at home or out of the office. This is typical of the patient that gets very anxious, very nervous when they are in a hospital or in a medical facility. And that normally is not a big deal. Because patients don't spend a lot of, a lot of time in a, in a hospital or in an urgent care. Okay, maybe they go if they are healthy. Okay, maybe they go once per year. So having elevated blood pressure once a year is not a problem. Make sure that at home in other settings, the 
wants to increase the systolic pressure more specifically. Uh, because this is simply because of the stiffness of the arteries. They give uh, when the left ventricle pumps, the blood that is moving out is gonna distend the aorta. Okay, and the branches of the aorta, if these arteries are elastic, they are gonna yield. Okay, so the blood doesn't doesn't have to do too much pressure, there is not too much resistance if the, if the artery is elastic. But when they are stiff, they are going to offer a lot of resistance to the blood during systole, and that's going to increase the systolic, uh, more importantly than the diastole. Obesity, family history of hypertension, the waist, uh, hypertension is more severe and starts at an, at an earlier age, and needs more medications in many cases in blacks than in other ethnicities or races. Um, this is not the way to be talking about many hours, but you're going to learn a lot about this in some of the subjects okay, that you're getting or we get at public health and the terminals of health. What is the reason for this? Now, people who have a reduced nephron number, okay, when we are born, we are born at term, and healthy and with a good weight, we are going to have around 1 million nephrons per day. Okay, in time, these nephrons are going to be destroyed for different reasons. Now, depending on with how many nephrons you start, okay, at the end of your life, we are going to have more or less. Okay, we start with a good amount of nephrons, we are likely to end up our life, 80, 90 years, who knows, with a nice amount of nephrons, uh, so we don't suffer from any kind of kidney disease. Okay, we, we have two million when we are born, but we only need, for the kidney to function perfectly, we only need half a million. Okay, so we lose three quarters of the nephrons during our life, that's perfectly fine. Okay? Now, if we are born, instead of with one million nephrons per kidney, with half a million per kidney, it's like retiring without any savings. And you have to spend the rest of your life working in public, stealing bags or something, doing something, because there is no reserve. So premature birth, any infection during pregnancy, any developmental abnormalities, hypoxia, medications, different things may affect the number of nephrons at birth. High sodium intake, excessive alcohol, physical inactivity, many other things, hypertension, things that we are going to be, hypertension, diabetes, different things that may be associated okay, to all these factors. Now, secondly, uh, what we have to rule out when we have, uh, when we are investigating our patients, Medications that they may be taking, like NSAIDs, estrogens, uh, present in oral contraceptives, different corticosteroids, antidepressants, adipropoietin, and, and some other medications, illicit drugs, people that have a kidney disease, a condition that appears in young females, and I'm not sure why, happens, is called renal artery fibromuscular dysplasia, like narrowing of the renal arteries because of the abnormal growth.
particular layer in the renal arteries. So now we have a narrowing of the arteries, renal arteries, so there is a little amount of blood reaching the kidneys. They are going to react to that by activating the renin and the tensing aldosterone system. Aldosterone is going to increase the reabsorption of sodium, water will follow sodium, more volume circulating, high blood pressure. People may have what we call primary aldosteronism, or maybe a hypertrophy of the adrenals, or a tumor in the adrenals producing aldosterone, pheochromocytomas producing epinephrine, tumor in the adrenal medulla producing catecholamines, Cushing syndrome, okay, will be characterized by uh, an increased amount of corticosteroids, okay, excessive cortisol. The Cushing syndrome may result from taking exogenous corticosteroids or may result from a tumor in the adrenals producing uh, corticosteroids or simply from a tumor in the pituitary that is making ACTH. And this ACTH will stimulate the adrenal gland to make cortisol, and in that case we call it Cushing disease. A Cushing syndrome may also appear in, for example, lungs, uh, lung cancer, or specifically small cell lung cancer, it will produce ectopic ACTH. So ACTH, instead of being produced in the pituitary, is producing the, the tumor of the lung, and this ectopic ACTH stimulates the adrenals, to my cortisol. Then we have coarctation of the aorta. This is one of the congenital anomalies that we are going to be studying soon. Uh, so this is the abdominal aorta. So there is an arrow in the abdominal aorta. Okay, so there is not too much blood reaching the legs. All the blood that the heart is pumping is going to affect mostly the upper extremities. So people may have high blood pressure in the arms and low blood pressure in the legs. This is coarctation, narrowing. And then hyperthyroidism, high hypothyroidism, both may lead to hypertension. And there are different complications. Remember cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of death. So from chronic hypertension, we may have different uh, long-term complications. For example, left ventricular hypertrophy. Hypertension is increasing the afterload. So the work that the myocardium has to do to pump the blood will lead to muscle hypertrophy, reducing the capacity of the ventricle, reducing the diastolic capacity, the filling. And this may produce heart failure. This may lead to a dilation of the heart later. So there is going to be a reduced ejection fraction. Okay, or a sometimes preserved ejection fraction, depending on the type of heart failure that the patient has. Strokes that can be ischemic, hemorrhagic, ischemic heart disease, all the complications, angina, myocardial infarctions, etc. And hypertension will affect very importantly the kidney. My person who's having hypertension for many years, okay, this peripheral vasoconstriction is not occurring only in the muscular arteries, it's also occurring in the renal arteries. 
they are going to have a hyperfiltration. Okay, uh, in the kidneys, these uh, nephrons, the glomeruli, are working excessively under this huge pressure. Okay, and this will affect the nephrons. The nephrons are going to start dying, dying at a higher rate than the person that has normal blood pressure. One of the things that happens very frequently in people with hypertension is that there is excessive activity of the angiotensin Remember, if we have for any reason this activity of the brain, angiotensin, and the system, angiotensin 2 is going to specifically produce a constriction of the efferent arterial in the glomerulus. Okay, the glomerulus, remember, has the afferent arterial and then the efferent. Normally, the diameter of the afferent is larger than the efferent one, maintaining a nice pressure to filter the urine. Now, if we constrict more the efferent, let's imagine an artery that sends the blood to the glomerulus, and you constrict the one that takes the blood out of the glomerulus. You constrict the one at the exit, the pressure in the glomerulus is going to increase more, okay, and that is going to damage this glomerulus. That's why we use the angiotensin converting enzyme in clinicals, okay, to prevent the renal damage in patients hypertension, because we are going to inhibit the enzyme, and we are going to produce a dilation of the efferent, relieving the pressure that is now in the glomerulus, and maybe delaying the, the renal damage in these patients. And also we have to recognize, for similar reasons, producing hypertensive retinopathy or nephropathy. state of cellular or tissue hypoxia. That is, that is the definition of when someone gets hypoxication. Somewhere else. I ask you, can tell me what shock is? Sorry. I was here. It's bad. I will receive some news and It's a state of cellular and tissue hypoxia. Okay, they are not receiving. Oxygen that can be due to reduced delivery or increased consumption or inadequate utilization of the oxygen. Or a combination. Okay. There are different things that can produce this state of shock. Okay. We are going to look at what is the inciting event for the different lives okay. that will reduce the cardiac output. Sometimes it's the heart that is not pumping enough. Okay, or it's going to affect the peripheral vascular resistance or both. Okay, either if the heart is not pumping or the arteries are too dilated peripherally, okay, we are going to have a situation in which we are not going to have enough pressure to perfuse the tissues. Okay, we are going to have a reduction in the mean arterial pressure and in the perfusion pressure, so the blood is not going to reach the tissues. Uh, blood pressure.
pressure normally is calculated by multiplying the cardiac output times the peripheral vascular resistance. And that there is a direct relationship. So if we increase any of these or we decrease either cardiac output or vascular resistance, we are going to have an increase or a decrease in blood pressure. Okay? And typically that person is in shock. Okay, they are difficult to treat. Okay, it's a blood pressure that falls and doesn't respond to fluids, doesn't respond to vasopressors. And we have to act very consciously depending on what is the reason or what is the cause of this shock. And we have to investigate several things. Okay, when the patient gets to the ER unconscious, with low blood pressure, there are many things that we have to rule out almost immediately. Okay, some of them are hypoglycemia. And also, the levels of cortisol. Okay, in the, in the blood. So sometimes, okay, by simply giving fluid and giving act base of pressure, they don't respond. We have to add a second base of pressure. We have to do several maneuvers in order to get them out of the shop. And there are different stages, pre-shock, shock, and the final is end organ dysfunction. That may affect the kidneys, may affect the brain, may affect different organs. These organs are start failing one after the other until there is an irreversible organ damage. This is affecting the brain, you know why it's going to be four types of shock. Okay, this cardiogenic, hypovolemic, and obstructive. Okay, these four types of shock have a totally different mechanism. And in some cases there are subdivisions that have some specificities. For example, distribution. Okay, the name tells you that there is a distribution of something. So from there you can start analyzing what happens. Remember, shock may occur because of the heart that has a problem that is not pumping, or maybe because there is an increased peripheral vascular resistance, so generalized vasodilation. Okay, the heart is normal, the heart has no problem, but the vascular the structures are very dilated, okay, and these are produces a very important decrease in the there is a very important decrease in the peripheral resistance. So excessive generalized vasodilation is what we call distributive shock. And there are some subtypes. We have the septic shock. Just in mind the cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, that normally produce vasodilation locally. Now they are producing vasodilation everywhere. Okay, we have the systemic inflammatory response syndrome that may occur in pancreatitis. Pancreatitis besides the cytokines, we have pancreatic enzymes circulating in the blood. There is the neurogenic shock. This is the one that refers to the salvation through the spinal cord. Okay, you remember the anatomy of the nervous system? Um, most of the parasympathetic innervation okay, goes to the heart, to the different viscerae, to the vagus nerve, but it arises in the 
and then their tens and then go down. But the sympathetic innervation travels from the sympathetic centers through the spinal cord to go out okay, at the levels of the thoracic and lumbar, vertebrae, spine segments. So we have a section of the spinal cord, let's say at the level of a low cervical level, very high thoracic level, we are going to interrupt the communication between the sympathetic nervous system centers and the blood vessels and the heart. So it's suddenly we don't have sympathetic nervous system. So there's a sudden drop in blood pressure. And we have toxin related, and toxin produced by bacteria or that we can ingest. And there are some endocrine shocks like Addisonian crisis. Simply our uh, adrenal cortex not producing corticosteroids. This happens, for example, patients who are, have been taking exogenous corticosteroids for a long time. When we are taking corticosteroids, they make a negative feedback on repeated diet, so we don't make ACTH. ACTH normally is the one that stimulates the adrenal cortex, but only to make corticosteroids, also to grow. Okay, lack of ACTH will make the adrenal glands to happen. So if we stop taking corticosteroids, we don't have tissue to make the corticosteroids that we need. That's why we have to taper down the medication when they are taking corticosteroids. Until ACTH This is the easiest one. Any problem in the heart? The heart is not popping. Reduction of the cardiac output. Low blood pressure. This is the forward failure that we were explaining during the heart failure. Maybe any kind of arrhythmia, cardiac infarction, or sometimes a valvular rupture. Different problems. This is typical, for example, after myocardial infarction, remember after three, four days, the tissue of the heart becomes very weak. And for example, people may have a rupture of the cornea tendon in the mitral valve. So suddenly, one of the leaflets of the mitral valve is loose. So we have suddenly a regurgitation of blood from the left ventricle into the left atrium that will produce acute pulmonary edema, but also will produce a sudden reduction in the cardiac output and a sudden drop in blood pressure that may lead to a cardiogenic shock. Then we have the high covering, also easy to understand, hemorrhage. Important hemorrhage or, or very severe diarrhea or dehydration that we have a reduction in the circulating volume. Okay, so notice the different mechanisms. In the first, you have the blood vessels dilated. In the second, you have the heart not pumping. And in the third, you have a reduction in the volume that normally circulates. And the fourth is what we call obstructive shock. The obstruction to the circulation may occur, for example, if there is a massive pulmonary embolism. You have a massive embolus that blocks totally the circulation through the lungs. Myelin and thrombus 
in the pulmonary tract blocking all the circulation. We have a collapse of the circulation or may occur because of a tension pneumothorax or a pericardial tamponade. The tension pneumothorax is when you have a, let's say, an injury to the chest wall and the orifice is not open, okay, it's closed, there is like a valve effect, there is a plaque of skin or tissue that allows only inspiration but not expiration. So fluid enters, the air enters through the chest wall but doesn't leave. So we have, with every breath, we're going to have an increase in the pressure inside the chest and that's going to compress the heart leading to a circulatory collapse. Disorders of the mind or post function. 
cells start suffering, okay? the cells will shift to the anaerobic metabolism, will start producing lactic acid. A lot. And lactic acid will produce alterations locally, for example, in the case of the heart, myocardium producing lots of lactic acid that will, will impair the contractility of the heart. And in other cases, it's going to have uh, some other consequences that are not very evident because we don't observe too much the things that occur more slowly. In the case of the heart, the brain, we are more likely to observe immediately the changes. So there's going to be lactic acidosis. Blood tests will show elevated lactic acid, lactate dehydrogenase enzyme, lactic acidosis. Okay, that will lead to mitochondrial damage, nuclear damage, and also the acidosis that is occurring inside the cells, besides affecting the contractility, will inactivate the efficiency of the calcium pumps. Okay, so now the cells will have an increase in the intracellular calcium. Okay, this calcium, uh, besides participating in muscle contraction, also activates some enzymes that normally should be inactive inside the cells, unless needed. Okay, and these enzymes, for example, phospholipases, will start breaking down the cell remains, the phospholipids of the cell remains. Okay, phospholipases, remember the ones that participate in the metabolism of the arachidonic acid, produce prostaglandins, produce lipotriens, during the inflammatory process. Okay, so now breakdown of cell membranes, leakage of intracellular contents into the extracellular fluid. Okay, lactic acidosis creates systemic metabolic acidosis and the spill of different intracellular things into the blood may activate the coagulation cascade. Okay, may activate clotting everywhere, disseminated intravascular coagulation. This will affect the membranes in the lungs. Have this inflammatory situation in the lungs, the endothelial cells of the alveoli separate, allowing fluid to leak from the blood vessels into the alveoli, producing acute respiratory distress syndrome. Okay, there are some slides later that you can you can see to have this more clear, the big picture of what happens and what explains the different outcomes in different types of but let's have a break. Okay. Let's have a 15 minute break.
ER, ICU, etc. The hypovolume shock can be used to have a pressure of very severe dehydration. It's easy to recognize if you know that the patient was bleeding. Sometimes we don't know the patient is bleeding. There can be some, let's say, car accident or blood trauma to the abdomen that can produce external bleeding. I remember the case of a patient who had a car accident and everything looked fine. He was almost about to be discharged and suddenly the blood pressure started dropping, dropping, dropping. And we're talking about a time when there weren't CT scans or anything. The only thing you had was x-rays. X-rays were fine, everything. Physical exam looked fine except for some swelling the left lower, the left upper quadrant, the plank. So, patient got in shock and had to be taken to the OR like it was. Okay? And the surgeon opened the abdomen and there was a rupture of the spleen, but the capsule of the spleen was not broken. So, the capsule of the spleen was holding all the blood and you could see, like, if it, if it was a balloon connected to a, a, a source of water, it was inflating the capsule, the capsule about to burst in the middle of the OR. And the surgeon went to ligate the renal, the splenic artery. And he ligated the vein instead. And that increased the swelling even more until he could ligate the that was very, very scary. And that was the decision. Okay? And he, I think he saved his life because the renal capsule didn't explode. Because all that blood would have gone out in the abdominal capsule without giving time to anyone to do anything. So dehydration hemorrhage, okay, there's going to be a reduced circulating volume. Now, having low circulating volume, translates, remembering a low venous return. Okay, so that will decrease the cardiac output. And what happens as a result of the low cardiac output is forward failure, low blood pressure. Okay, use pretty low. Patients are going to have low jugular venous pressure. And notice the different things that you're going to be finding. I put there in both letters, the most important things. Low blood pressure is present in everyone. And notice that here we have low JVP. Now, the response of the blood vessels peripherally is vasoconstriction, trying to hold the blood in the center of the body, not from the skin. Okay, to guarantee that it's the brain and the heart receive some blood. Cold, motile extremities, they're going to have altered level of consciousness because of the low percussion to the brain. Now, remember in this case, this is a hemorrhage, but the heart is working perfectly, or trying to. So there's going to be an increased heart rate. It's a compensatory tachycardia. And the result of lactic acidosis on the heart, remember this is going to impair the contraction, it's going to increase the intracellular calcium. may present as what we call a pulseless, pulseless electrical activity. 
system of the heart is transmitting impulses that you may see in the EKG, but the heart is not contact. Okay, so there is a, an electromechanical dissociation. No pulse, no pressure, but you see a normal or kind of normal EKG. Pulseless electrical activity in the heart. Now the kidneys are going to suffer as a result of the low cardiac output. They are receiving very little blood. It's going to manifest with renal failure, increased BUN. Creatinine doesn't tend to increase too much. Normally when there is a renal failure resulting from hypovolemia, then we have increased BUN and not too much creatinine. Okay, you are going to learn in nephrology how to calculate the BUN to creatinine ratio. There's a lot of kidney failure may have increased both the BUN and the creatinine, but if the BUN is elevated 20 times the creatinine value, that is more likely as a result of hypovolemia, something that we call pre-renal kidney failure, and that is something that simply can be fixed with giving fluids to the patient. So very important BUN not too much creatinine compared to BUN. And oliguria. Okay, little urine production. Our body is going to try to lose us, uh, us not too much fluids. Okay, so it's not going to produce urine, and if it produces urine, it's going to be very concentrated. Okay, the liver, the kidneys are not receiving blood, so they can't do their job. They're going to fail to drink the lactic acid, and people will develop a severe metabolic acid. Notice the different findings okay, that you may have in a person with hypovolemic shock, and notice as we advance to the other types, what is different between them so you can respond to this, what is the most likely diagnosis. Distributed shock, totally different shock. And here, when we have these specific types of shock, the septic shock, the neurogenic, anaphylactic shock, these are examples. Any condition that produces generalized vasodilation, that is the starting point of the shock. Formation services, pancreatitis, any medication, anaphylactic shock, will start, okay, trigger this type of shock. If someone has all the conditions, for example, liver failure, doesn't clear the vasodilatory molecules or adrenal insufficiency, they don't have cortisol, adrenal crisis, or they can constrict the, 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 the blood vessels. Um, it's important to know how hormones work. We are used to study, okay, epinephrine produces this, cortisol produces that. Well, there are many interactions that these hormones have. For example, when the adrenal medulla is gonna make epinephrine, it needs cortisol. Okay, the pathway, the biochemical pathway to make epinephrine has different steps, different enzymes, but the two final steps, so the final step is the conversion of norepinephrine to epinephrine. To make epinephrine from norepinephrine, you need cortisol. Cortisol will stimulate that enzyme there Okay, if cortisol is not present, that final step is going to be impaired. Besides that, the 
receptors for epinephrine that we have in the blood vessels and in the heart, okay, to make them, to express them, we need thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone will stimulate that we make more of these receptors. But also, when epinephrine is going to act on the receptors, it needs cortisol. So cortisol and epinephrine need to be there okay, for epinephrine to be able to act. That's why when someone has what we call an adrenal crisis, a dysonian crisis or adrenal crisis, we may give epinephrine to increase their blood pressure, and they don't respond. And that's why people who are at risk of having adrenal crisis need to have a brace. Okay, because if you are working in emergency services, and you have a patient with hypertension and shock that they are about to die, you don't have time to assess cortisol levels. Or, uh, or to figure, oh, maybe this is cortisol. What is the differential diagnosis here? And you have to act like if someone has a, a risk of an anaphylactic shock, they should have the epipen with them. Okay? They also have, should have a bracelet that indicates people okay, that they need hydrosols. So these things may aggravate or may trigger this distributed shock. How it manifests, like the hypovolemic, but the extremities are going to be warm, and the, the pulses are going to be bound. Okay, you have a huge vasodilation, you have hypotension, the heart has no problem, so the heart's going to start increasing the, the heart rate and the strength, and that is going to manifest with bounding pulses. Now, there is a specificity here that is a neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock occurs very quickly after any injury to the cervical or upper thoracic spine. Okay, uh, the cervical uh, will depend, of course, on the level. Any injury above T4 will lead to unopposed parasympathetic okay, inhibition of the heart. Um, we produce bradycardia. Remember, we, we now don't have the sympathetic nervous system acting to balance the heart rate. It's above the board. Um, this is the only thing that we use, of course, besides the history. If someone has a cervical spine injury, we know that that is a, a neurogenic shock. But if we don't have the History, I'm talking about a vignette, where you find a patient unconscious and you don't know what happened. Okay, you have the patient with the signs of distributed shock, but also bradycardia, we may suspect that this is an injury about people. Now, let me tell you something, because we need to talk about uh, real life things. When someone has a injury to the spinal cord, and if you have a, an exam, or someone asks you in a low hospice, okay, what happens if there is injury at T4? Immediately thinking that you are But in real life, when someone has an injury, let's say a scissor, normally the edema, as a result of that injury, will move up two segments, or sometimes three, and down two or three segments. So in real life, it's very difficult by doing a physical 
exactly where the injury is. Okay? We have to wait some days until the edema is reabsorbed to have the more specific findings of the damage. But also, if we are having an injury that is maybe in an upper cervical level, we are talking about C to and the edema goes up two or three segments, where is it going? The brainstem. Okay? On brainstem, we have cardiovascular, respiratory center, the reticular activating system. So, very little possibilities of making it when there is a very high cervical injury. So, bradycardia is a, an important person in the shock or may occur in late stages of any shock. Okay, at the beginning, the heart is working. The heart is trying to compensate. Let's say someone has uh, an anaphylactic shock or a septic shock. If the vasodilation will lead to increased activity of the heart, trying to increase the blood pressure. But then the acidosis starts impairing the heart contractility. There is going to be myocardial depression. So in late stages of any type of shock, we may find radicality. Okay, this is like a second pre-mortem okay, stage of shock. Cardiogenic, it may be caused by any problem in the heart itself, valvular dysfunction, arrhythmias, cardiomyopathies, infarctions. In this case, there is going to be low cardiac output forward dysfunction and a build-up of pressure. That is a backward dysfunction. Blood accumulates in the lungs. Blood accumulates in the uh, chambers before the, ventri the ventricle. Okay, let's say the left atrium. Remember, this is going to affect the right circulation as well. So these people are going to have distended veins. Okay, and vasoconstriction. Increased JPP compared to hypovolemic. See the importance of the JPP in a differential diagnosis. When you assess your patient and you write down the JPP, please always write down the angle of the bed. If you don't write down the angle, I don't know. I, I can't repeat the measurement. Remember when you, the person is sitting, the JVD is going to close up. When they are lying flat, the JVD is going to go up. So I need to know 4 centimeters at 45. So if I want to reassess, I have to put the patient at 45 and reassess that. The same with the oxygen. Oxygen saturation, 98. 50% oxygen, 100% oxygen. How do I know? Okay, we need the two values in order to have an idea of the progression of the patient. And the obstructive is the one that happens in uh, cardiac tamponade okay, or tension in the motorics. may occur in cases of very, very severe asthma. It has to be really, really, really severe 
saying, when you're in a in, in an emergency like this, a cardiac tank, okay, let's let me measure the systolic pressure. Okay, now the penicillin is we don't do that. When a patient is in this emergency. Simply, we are assessing the pulse. It's very weak. And during inspiration, the pulse disappears. Okay, that's how we assess it in real life.
surgery to require some of cancer, or the dentist, or aspect want to associate this. Like eye-liter users, they have candida. Notice that this is for subacute. Okay, in the case of acute, are step in celiac or staphylococcus aureus for eye-liter users. The subacute is staphylococcus epidermidis. Okay, epidermidis is normal flora. It's not, uh, normal, normally present in our skin. Then we have the non-infectious endocarditis. We're going to see two types. One is called Lippmann-Sachs, and the other is called Marantic. Lippmann-Sachs is endocarditis that appears in people with systemic lupus. May affect the mitral, may affect the aortic valve. These are the most common ones. This is an autoimmune lupus. Autoimmune virus may attack any tissue, pericardium, endocardium, myocardium, any, any tissue of the body. And the marantic is one that occurs from metastasis, a cancer that metastasized in endocardium has a very poor prognosis. Now, these are various factors. We were mentioning them when we talked about the etiology. When you first the rheumatic heart disease, okay, IV drugs, immunosuppression, congenital or prosthetic heart valves, the process is uh, very similar to any other infectious process. mixed a little bit with the clotting, coagulation, uh, cascade. Okay, there is an endothelial damage that may occur for different reasons. Okay, for example, in mind, some of these using IV drugs, heroin, for example, they may mix the heroin with anything that they find. Dealer, maybe they get the heroin for a price and they want to make more profit. They may take, I don't know, sand. I don't know what they can put in there, sugar or sand or ibuprofen. Or simply talc or some or dirt. So this talc that may be present there, little sponge, may damage the endocardium, the cardiac valve when it's circulating. As it may damage any vein producing thrombosis or anything, any damage in the feeling. But this may be damaged because of our antibodies that maybe were made against streptococcus pyogenes, and now these antibodies are attacking the endothelial cells or the endocardial cells in the valves. So there is a damage in the endothelium. Okay? There is a problem in the surface that becomes rough. And then the platelets are going to attach there. They are going to initiate clotting process with fibrin deposition. We have a thrombus the bodies. Okay, until this moment, there is nothing really bad here, just a little thrombus on the body. Now, bacteria, for example, during a dental procedure, may attach to that thrombus. Okay, every time, for example, we brush our teeth, some bacteria enter inside the blood. But they are not too many. They are going to be trapped. They are going to be neutralized. However, in a dental procedure, we may have an important amount of bacteria going into the circulation, okay, and they may attach to the thrombus, forming a, what we call vegetation. Okay, these are made because now you have the thrombus, the bacteria, and this is going to attract more platelets, and 
Besides the fever, patient has a breath, systemic symptoms. The physical exam we may find a new hormone, patient without any history of the motor, now has a hormone. And also the manifestations from the emboli for the position of immune complexes somewhere. Okay, well this emboli and these uh, bacteria are in the blood. You may start making antibodies against them. There can be accumulation of antigens and antibodies that typically should be cleared by the skin, by the screen, but now they get deposited, for example, in the kidney, producing glomerulonephritis, or may end up in older blood vessels, producing vasculitis of different types. There are some classic signs that they appear in endocarditis, for example, the rough spots, which are retinal hemorrhages the position of immune complexes in the retina or the embolization that produces hemorrhages there, gemolitions, which are non-tender macules on the palms and soles, and then we have splinter hemorrhages that may appear in the nails, and the ocular nose, which are tender, nodules on the fingers and toes. Notice that this one is non-tender, red and non-tender, gameway, and the ulcer, open hearts, are the tender ones, okay? In the fingers or toes. And glomerulonephritis. So, we also have to see our dissection reasons before going to the valvular disease. But the arctic dissection okay, and the aneurysm, these are some pathologies that sometimes are related. Okay, they in many cases have the same origin, a result of chronic inflammatory disease or aperosclerosis affecting the period. In out of this, this section, there is simply a separation between the intima of the aorta and the uh, layers below the intima, the muscular. So there is a separation of the planes of the aorta 
second is the most common utility for this. Then there is a constant struggle uh, between the blood, uh, blood vessel wall and the pressure. Then there is like a shearing effect of the blood, constantly pulling okay, uh, from, this, uh, from this layer. There are some other conditions, Marfan, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or maybe the other gene. an intimate tear, okay, the blood enters the intramural artery hemorrhage, separating the <coughs> intimate corneal And this may rupture, leading to a thoracic or abdominal cavity hemorrhage or cardiac pathway, depending on where this rupture is occurring. This is occurring in the abdominal area, of course, it's not going to produce anything in the plate Thank you. 
Iloga preferentially one of the iliac arteries, we may find differences in the forces, for example, between the right and left leg. It's something that maybe wasn't present before, and now we find it. And so the manifestations, the physical exam findings, will depend on where is the location of this. And we could call it hematoma, it's accumulation of blood, okay, that is decreasing the lumen of the aorta or any of its branches. Now, in the abdominal aorta, something that we have very frequently is the, what do you call it, triple A, abdominal aortic aneurysm. An aneurysm is simply a, a dilatation of the walls of the aorta, segmental and full thickness dilation, typically below the renal arteries and above the common iliacs. There are some risk factors, age, sex, male, tobacco, family history, Caucasian race, and atherosclerosis. Any common risk factors in order of these chronic conditions. So for many different reasons, tobacco is one of the most important ones. Then we are going to have a destruction, degeneration of the elastic fibers in the, in the world of the era degradation of the collagen and loss of elasticity of the artery wall that become very weak. It starts distending, distending, distending over time. And the larger the diameter is, the greater the probability of a rupture. It's the greatest probability when it's more than 5.5 centimeters in diameter. Now the presentation depends on if it's ruptured or not. They may be symptomatic or asymptomatic. And the symptomatic people may be with a rupture or non-ruptured aneurysm. Most cases are asymptomatic. They may be discovered just uh, as an incidental finding on a physical exam or any other test, or we may find a blue, abdominal blue, some the turbulence. And the symptomatic ones may have abdominal back pain or flat pain. That it's not ruptured, and if it ruptures, severe pain, we may have the pulsatalmas and hypotension that will depend on the severity of the bleeding that will give an entry into a hypovolemic shock because of the important loss of fluids. And this shows you the more typical location. valvular 
effects typically occur second directing infections, post-inflammatory or degenerative process resulting from age calcification, or sometimes different other heart diseases. For example, ischemic heart disease that may lead to a rupture of these important tendons or any other problem affecting the bugs. Now, the most common type, a type of stenosis or insufficiency. It's important to have clear the terminology here, okay? Um, we tend to use, for example, mitral insufficiency or mitral regurgitation as if they are the same thing and they are not. Okay? The valve, the one that has to work and close, is not closed. The valve is insufficient. The blood, as a result of that, regurgitates. Okay, so having a mitral regurgitation, what we really mean is there is a regurgitation of blood through the mitral valve. The problem in the valve is insufficient. It insufficiently closes. It doesn't close, but it should close. Okay, so stenosis is a narrowing. The valve that doesn't open when it should be open. And insufficiency is a valve that doesn't close properly, and there can be a combination. Okay, that is also frequent. Okay, because if we have a valve that is calcified, that doesn't move too much because of the calcification, it's going to be narrow. It's, it's not going to open totally when it has to open, but this rigidity is also going to impair the closing. So a valve may not open totally and may not close totally. There can be a combination of stenosis and insufficiency. Now, understanding the type of valvular disease and putting this together with the anatomy of the cell is going to help you understand the manifestation, the findings on the physical exam, and also the possible complications of the valvular diseases. For example, stenosis. Okay, when you have an stenosis in a valve, okay, the proximal chamber normally is the one that has to do a lot of work. Okay, if we are talking about stenosis in the mitral valve, the left atrium will have to work a lot to force the blood through that stenotic valve. But if the stenosis is in the aorta, in the aortic valve, now it's the left ventricle, the, the one that has to work a lot. So when there is stenosis, the proximal chamber will overwork with hypertrophy. It has to work a lot. But what about when there is an insufficiency? Okay, if the valve opens properly, there is no effort needed to pump the blood. But when the valve doesn't close, there is going to be blood returning to the proximal chamber. So when the proximal chamber will pump again, has to deal with the blood that came back and the blood that normally comes to that chamber. So now has to deal with more fluid. In the cases of steno or insufficiency, the problem is not going to be hypertrophy and overworking. It's going to be that this proximal chamber has to open up to accommodate the excess fluid. Okay, so typically stenosis produces a hypertrophy of the proximal chamber 
concentric hypertrophy, thickness of the water piece, and the insufficiency and the regurgitation from this insufficiency will produce a dilation, increasing size or eccentric hypertrophy of the proximal muscle because of the volume problem. And there are many different etiologies. For example, rheumatic fever may produce anything, anything that you might, but the most common thing that it produces is stenosis. But may produce any other problem. Microfibrillation, the aortic stenosis of regurgitation, trichuspid, pulmonic, anything can be produced by microfibrillation. Any other rheumatic condition, lupus. Regurgitation, same microfibrillation, rheumatic fever may produce it. Now, microfibrillation, that is a specific type that is microval prolapse. Okay, no study independent. It may result from other conditions. Outer stenosis typically is a degenerative problem in the elderly, degenerative calcification, but may occur as a, as a congenital valvulopathy in patients with congenital body 